Well, we have the re- privilege of rejoining our old friend Jude tonight, beginning at verses 17 through 19. We are almost at the end of the epistle, and during the break I'll make a comment on what is in front of us, but if you'll turn to Jude verse 17, let's position this section, verses 17 to 19, in the light of the overall structure. You're probably tired of seeing this structural outline by now. Maybe you've got it memorized. Good for you. If not, then I'll remind you of where we are. Verses 17 to 19 down there at the bottom are part of a little bracket that contrasts the false teachers up above in verse 4 with the true teachers. It reminds us that we have two sections, actually three sections, this epistle, or two types of material in this epistle. The bracket, or the inclusio, the section that brackets the middle, is directed to the believing community, verses 1 to 3, and perhaps even verse 4. That means that verses 17 to 25 are also directed to the believing community, and they sandwich the unbelieving community, or the intruders, or the interlopers, as we've described them in verses 5 to 16, which is divided into two separate units, keyed by three Old Testament illustrations. So we have a shift from what we've been uh, talking about here in verse 17. And I can ask you how, besides what I just outlined on the basis of the larger paradigm from the structural outline, what is your clue from the text in verse 17 that we've shifted? We have a shift in the epistle. Do you see anything there in the 17th verse that indicates we've kind of gotten a transition? The word but? That's part of it. Remember? You? You. All right, now, why did you say you, Scott, in contrast to what? Um, I don't remember the exact terms, but in reference to the other people, we're always referring to Look up above. Okay. These. Yes, the these. So here is the indication that we've shifted. The address to these ends at verse 16, and these are the ones that have been described in terms of the Old Testament examples Three times over in three times twice over in verses five to sixteen. So the contrast between you and, as Bob pointed out, beloved, you meaning meaning the beloved Christians to whom Judas addressing this letter indicates that we've shifted addressees. We shifted those whom the, the uh, writer is uh, communicating with in this part of his letter. But he's also shifted his tone. <clears throat> Verses 5 to 16 are kind of negative and harsh. <clears throat> they are uh, firmly so and uh, warrantably so. In other words, it's not uh, gratuitous harshness. 
<clears throat> but he's warning them about these intruders who have disturbed the peace of the church. <clears throat> now here he's addressing those who are uh, beloved, <clears throat> those who are uh, professing and practicing Christian believers without pretense and, and without uh, <clears throat> Uh, 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 appearing to be what they are not. <clears throat> and he will continue in this style from verse 17 to 25. Now, there's one other thing that he does here, <clears throat> which also indicates that he shifted his tone, he shifted <clears throat> his uh, <clears throat> comments, he shifted the direction of his epistle. And that's a positive Illustration or a positive example. <clears throat> in verses 5 to 16, we had a series of negative examples. For instance, the unbelieving <clears throat> Israelites who died in the wilderness, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who were destroyed by the rain of God's fire and brimstone, uh, Balaam, <clears throat> who was a uh, <clears throat> an immoral uh, prophet, <clears throat> and also... A, uh, a money-grabbing prophet. <clears throat> so we've had a number of these negative examples or negative illustrations <clears throat> in the previous unit. But in this final unit, he provides us with a positive model. What might that be? Who might that be? The apostles, correct. Verse 17. So in this section, we also have the commendation of a positive illustration, not a warning of negative illustrations. So it's another indication that once again, shift, we've changed directions in the rhetoric of the epistle. All right. Now, uh, in your outline, Opposite verse 17, I've indicated that we have a symmetry of recursion, a parallelism of recursion. There are two words that you find in verse 17, and I'm wondering if you can find them anywhere else as you look down from verse 17 on. Seventeen and twenty. Uh, you're using the NIV. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> There's that inferior translation again. Uh, <clears throat> it's actually stronger than that. The word "beloved" occurs in both of those, but um, I'm looking for two words that also occur in both of those verses. Okay. First two words of verse 17. First two words of verse 20. But you. Okay, so we have a recursion, a symmetry of parallelism. Same two words, same expression, exactly the same uh, words in the Greek. But you lined up or parallel to but you in verse 20. Now, structurally, we might suggest that this is a framing device. That is, he's done this in order to frame that which is in between verse 17 and verse 20. 
Is that the case? No, it's not. This is not a framing device. This is what's called an anaphora. Now, an anaphora is a way of repeating at the beginning of a rhetorical unit or a literary unit the exact same expression. In other words, it's like a keynote. It's like a marker. It indicates to you that he's going to say something which begins one way, and for a series of verses, he's going to expand. Then he's going to repeat that very same expression, and he's going to expand again in a a slightly different way. This term, anaphora, is a description of a marker or a series of words which are exactly symmetrical, exactly duplicate at the top or at the beginning of two successive units. The recurrence of initial words in two or more successive units. Now you have a very good example of this in another chapter of the Bible, very famous chapter of the Bible. A chapter in which a phrase occurs over and over and over again. Because each time it occurs, it is performing an anaphoretic repetition. It's heading a section of expansion, a section of explication. Do you happen to know a book of the Bible which has an expression over and over and over again? Hebrews 11. Very good, David. And the phrase is? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. That is a recurrent anaphora. And it is a rhetorical device. It it limits the unit, which which is in between uh, the successive mentions of by faith. But it also indicates that those units are discrete. That is, they are indicating something particularly unique and special in and of themselves. So what Jude is doing here is not unusual. You can see other patterns, other examples of it in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. Uh, We have in our historical books, of course, just uh, the other day, talking about the book of Joshua, noticing how the Hebrew writer of Joshua also uses anaphora to structure the book. He uses the phrase, Joshua's advanced in years, and he divides up the end of the book into large units by that phrase. It's quite significant and interesting. All right, so now you know what an anaphora is. It is a recurring indication of successive units which are symmetrical or parallel by vocabulary. Now, we've already pointed out that there is an antithesis in this section from 17 on, but you, but you in antithesis to these, the intruders, the interlopers, those who have come into this community. What kind of people are they in general? Would you give me a characterization of what kind of people these are that have intruded? Ungodly. They're ungodly. That's a good word. Any other word? That's a word which has certainly been used in staccato fashion to describe them in verse 15, isn't it? Any other word? Well, they're called They are that as well. Okay. Any other word? Arrogant. What about their ethics? Rebellious. Rebellious. They're rebellious. Okay. 
Immoral. They are immoral. Yes, they are immoral. All right, we want to talk about that a little more, but we've seen that pattern, particularly with the illustrations of sexual immorality in the previous uh, uh, <coughs> section in which we've seen uh, the fornication at Baal Peor, homosexuality at Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. All right, now, <clears throat> this phrase, but you, is actually in the Greek described as a post-positive. Now, I've given you the Greek word there, the de, transliterated as a de, which is the word but. And the grammatical post-positive means that the word which is translated first in the sentence actually stands second in the sentence in terms of order. So this but or de is in the second position in the sentence. You in the Greek text is actually in the first position. So if we were reading it literally, we would be reading the Greek text, you but. But since it's post-positive, that is the de is a post-positive in Greek grammar, we translate the de first even though it's in the after initial or after positive position in the sentence. Now, what's the significance of this? Is it just Denison being fancy about Greek grammar? No. This is a very uh, important part of Greek grammar. It's a very important part of reading the Greek New Testament, or the Greek Bible, for that matter. What's the point of a post-positive de? It is an emphatic, emphatic antithesis, an emphatic negative. But you, not those, not these, but you. You see, it signals the fact that they are distinguished, radically distinguished from the these who are immoral, the these who are the intruders, the these who are the interlopers, but you. See, emphatic distinction of this believing Portion of the community to which Jude is writing. And then he addresses them uh, not as dear friends, but as beloved, because that's what the Greek word says. The Greek word doesn't say dear friends. The Greek word is a form of agape, which means loved ones. And so beloved is an accurate translation. Dear friends is a paraphrastic. Would you say dear friend to your wife? Would you say, dear friend, to your son or daughter? See? Your loved ones in your family. You would describe them as your loved ones, your beloved ones. Right? Well, all right. Now, we want to think about why Jude uses this. This is not the first time he's used this word. He used it up above in verse 3. It is the same Greek term. has that form of agape in it. <clears throat> all right. So, we're asking ourselves, why does he address them as beloved? And our first clue is actually in the first verse of the epistle. So if you'll glance up at verse 1, why does he call them beloved? To those that are called. Okay. Anything else? Sanctified. Sanctified isn't in the text. You're probably reading from the King James. No. Inferior text, at least at that point. 
They belong to Christ. What's that? They belong to Christ. Okay, I want to hold that one. Loved by God. They are loved by God the Father. He says they're loved by God the Father, right? So they're beloved because they're loved by God the Father. Let's think about that for a moment. What does it mean to be loved by God the Father? What does it mean to be an object of his fatherly affection? What does it mean to be addressed as those who are the focus of the passion of God, the Heavenly Father? You see, you become quiet as I roll that out, don't you? Because you're immediately struck by the fact that that is a very warm and tender and affectionate expression that you or I or anyone in this community to which Jude writes could be the object of the love of the Heavenly Father. A love which is as deep and as eternal as he in himself, in his own person, is deep and eternal. A love which in its affection places you in the focus of his attention as the apple of his eye. You are an object of his passionate delight. He looks upon you as he looks upon his own son. He cannot look upon his son as any other than his eternally beloved. You, in union with Christ, are looked upon as eternally beloved in Christ Jesus. This form of address which Jude uses, you see, is particularly poignant to draw them into the circle of the affectionate passion, love, of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderfully tender and winsome comment. It's also a wonderfully confirming and assuring reflection. So when you ponder this word, and dear friends, doesn't get it, it really doesn't get it. Beloved in God the Father. All right, now, someone else remarked that they were called, but also in that first verse, you'll notice that they are kept in or for Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he repeats the word love. Mercy, love, and peace be unto you. Here, he attaches not only the love of God to the Father, but he addresses that love to Jesus Christ, in whom you are kept by love. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, gave him to you, so that Christ the Son loves you as the Father loves you, and the Father loves you as the Son loves you. You are not the object 
of his wrath after he loves you, after his love is placed upon you, after his love takes possession of you. You are an object of his wrath until his love transforms you, but at the point at which his love transforms you, you are now the precious beloved of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These, this term, then, is a term which is wonderfully poignant and wonderfully rich. It is rich in assurance, rich in affection. It is rich in the grace of God. You know you don't deserve the love of God. You know you don't deserve the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it is as a precious gift to you, as a love gift to you, as a gift of the passion of the triune God, gift to you. All right, so he's picking up on things he's already said. He's going back to the type of expression that he used at the beginning of this letter. He's reinforcing his affection, God's affection for them, so that even in this contrast, this radical antithesis between you and them, they will not feel as if they have been rejected or treated with harshness or callousness. But he uses this term for one more reason. Yes, they are beloved of God the Heavenly Father. Yes, they are kept in the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But why else does he use this term? Because he loves them. Jude loves them. They are beloved of Jude, even as they are beloved of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For how could he love any less whom God loves? How could he have affection any less whom Christ has kept in his love? Jude sees those who are loved of God the Father and kept in the love of Christ as loved of him. He reciprocates. He reflects. He shows that same affection for these to whom he writes, whom he, whom he knows are beloved in God the Father and kept in the love of Jesus Christ. Objects of God's love, objects of Jude's love. These genuine believers in this community. He delights in them with his affection with his own holy passion for them, even as he knows God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ does. Now, within this section here in 17 to 19, we have a little narrative subplot. Now, when I use that language, a narrative subplot, I'm talking about characters, like characters in a story. So we want to think about this section in terms of characters in a story. And the story here is actually a little drama. 
So this narrative subplot that I'm referring to is an an exposition or a demonstration of characters in a little drama. So who are our characters in our drama? Scoffers. Pardon? Scoffers. Not Not in this part of the drama. Verse 17. Okay, so we have the believers who are beloved. We have the apostles, correct? Anybody else? The Lord. The Lord, okay. Anybody else? Jude. Jude himself, correct. So, we have three characters, or three groups of characters. We have the community of believers, addressed as the beloved. We have the apostles named, and we have Jude named. There is this mini-drama going on in this verse. Now, what was the content or context of that mini-drama? What's the little narrative subplot here? What about this community of believers and the apostles? Like a warning? Not a warning. Remember? Remember what? The predictions of the, of the apostles. Remember what was spoken by the apostles. Does that mean that they heard it? Aha, so here's our story. These believers heard the apostles. They heard what was spoken by the apostles. So our drama here is that the words of the apostles, as the apostles delivered them, were heard by these believers. Now... That raises the question of a mirror paradigm. A mirror paradigm meaning a paradigm of reflection, like a mirror. Jude takes the same position with respect to the beloved believers in this community as they take with respect to him. He calls them beloved. If we had their uh, words about Jude, they would say Jude is beloved as well. So this is a reciprocal mirror relationship. Well, what about a mirror of the beloved believers and the apostles? In other words, if Jude can call these believers beloved, implication is, they would call Jude beloved, does that mean that the apostles are included in this mirror reflection, that they too are beloved? You say, obviously that is so. That is true. It is somewhat obvious. So that there is a mirror reflection of love in Jude, in the believers of this community, and in the apostles. In other words, there's a reflection of affection that that shines or redounds to all three of the characters in our little mini-drama. 
Well, that reflection, is it an identification paradigm? In other words, is this community identified with the apostles? Well, they're certainly identified with one of the apostles. Their words, what they had heard them say. Okay? All right, well, does this suggest, then, that Jude is identified with the apostles? In other words, if there's an identification between the community and the apostles, they heard the words of the apostles. Is Jude identified with the apostles? Did he hear their words? It is, it is likely that he heard his words. Exactly. Okay. Because those words are communicated by his brother. All right. Now, here's... Here's the, the, the clincher to this paradigm. Does this identification then between the apostles, Jude, and the community of believers, does this identification imply that Jude is an apostle? You see, there's a mirror paradigm here. There's a reflection of the affection between uh, God, the Father, God, the Son, the community, and Jude. There is an identification in terms of identification with the apostolic teaching and words. Does that suggest even further an identification with the apostolic office? In other words, is Jude here in identifying or in mirroring, is he also mirroring the apostolic office? This is an intriguing question. There are many scholars that believe Jude was an apostle. Then in verse 1, why doesn't he describe himself as an apostle? Paul routinely describes himself as an apostle. Jude does not. Jude, in fact, uses a distinction paradigm, a paradigm that sets him apart from an apostle. He calls himself a bondservant. Now, you'll say to me, but the apostle Paul calls himself a bondservant. Yes, he does. But Jude seems to distance himself from that label. In the opening of his salutation, opening of his greeting. And he does so because he will not even name the Lord Jesus except in relationship to his servitude, slavery to him. He won't dignify himself with the term that those who are servants of Christ use, namely the term apostolos. I'm tantalizing you with a series then of, shall we say, paradigmatic mini-dramas. And I'm doing it in order to raise the question as to whether or not this mirror paradigm, which reflects upon the community, Jude and the apostles, this identification paradigm, which unites them in terms of affection, 
the apostles, Jude, and the believing community. Whether this mirror and identification paradigm is also an apostolic paradigm when it comes to the uniqueness of Jude himself. This is a serious question. It doesn't mean that an inspired letter could not be written by a non-apostle. That is obviously true in the case of the epistle to the Hebrews. That is not an apostolic epistle. An ordinary believer could have written an inspired apostle by God's designation and inspiration. So, what do we say in conclusion? We say we cannot solve it. We say we can only observe it. But here we observe it in a slightly more intimate literary manner, a slightly more dramatic manner. When we see Jude himself reflecting himself in the community and in the apostles, identifying himself with the community and the apostles, does it imply that he is himself assuming the role of apostle as he does that? Perhaps so, perhaps not. The distinction, the distinguishing vocabulary that he uses in verse 1 may mean that he's being very careful. He is in the drama of the apostolic world and the world of these believers but he is not to be identified in office with the apostolic community or apostolic witnesses. He distinguishes himself as merely a bond slave of Christ. Randy. I assume you're referring to the possibility there's more than 12 apostles. And that the using the apostle in another sense, like all uses it in some point of his letters, Yes, uh, an apostle being one who had seen the risen Christ, which is how Paul himself becomes an apostle. So uh, define an apostle then more tightly from somebody who has seen the risen Christ. Yes. So there was 500 people who seen Christ. Yes, but then designated such, Okay. So those who take the title, Paul takes the title. He's entitled to take the title because he has seen the risen Savior. So we would say there are at least 13, counting Matthias as the replacement for Judas Iscariot. It is conceivable that there are more. And this is, of course, one of the reasons this matter here with respect to Jude's identity is debated or at least, shall I say, explored. Scott. You're saying that seeing the risen Christ is a necessary precondition for being an apostle, but it's not a sufficient condition. No, correct. Good. Right. Thank, thank you for being church and precise. <laughs> I, I have a question for you. Yes, go ahead. Um, if... You know, you've made the, the argument why one wouldn't side with the apostolic side. So what would press us to think that maybe he as an apostle to leave this kind of a 50-50 guess 
in light of the fact that verse 17 also puts the beloved together with the apostles in Christ, and they clearly aren't apostles themselves. So wouldn't that possibly be, or wouldn't that kind of more likely, in light of the other language of Jude, be an indication that they are all in their own way united together in Christ Jesus without any of them taking on each other's unique office or position? Yeah, that's fine. That's the kind of thing that one would use to support his non-apostolic character. Obviously, I structured this so I'm forcing you to come to grips with the issue because many commentators grapple with this matter, you know, whether or not Jude really was an apostle. He's certainly close enough to the Lord Jesus to qualify, at least in terms of relationship. So it's it's uh, it's something that kind of intrigues them as they uh, uh, consider how it is that he describes himself in this letter. So when they come to this particular passage, the fact that he brings the apostles into the argument, is he doing it because he's actually subtly including himself in the same uh, same company? But I tend to agree with the type of thing you said. I don't, I don't know that there's any reason to move away from generic qualities here that are common to him and to the community. Uh, uh, nonetheless, this is the place in the epistle where the commentators will start to wax eloquent on whether or not he could have been an apostle himself. Randy, you look like you're ready to say something profound. Don't have it. It's not there. Okay. Profundity comes after the break, I guess. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, uh, that brings us to verse 18 and to the quotation that is recorded there. Where do you find it in the Bible? Do you have chapter and verse? I'm just grabbing in my memory somehow. Well, my thing on the side, it said 2 Peter 3.3. Okay. Let's take a look at 2 Peter 3.3. Would somebody read it, whoever gets there first? Since I looked it up, I have it. Thank you. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Is that exactly like what we have in verse 18? No. It's not exactly like what we have in verse 18. It is similar to it. And going way back to the beginning of our series on Jude, who did we say wrote first, Peter or Jude? Jude wrote first. That's the general opinion. So that actually Peter would be borrowing upon Jude's text here, wouldn't he? And that would make sense in the sense that as you look at Peter's use of it, he actually changes it a little bit. He embellishes it. I'm not saying that he shades it or makes it untrue. He simply adds to it something which is implicit, but he makes it clear. Nonetheless, it's not exactly the same thing that Jude records. So we come back to that question again. 
Where do I find this statement in the Bible of the apostles? I find it in Jude 18, don't I? Here is a saying of the apostles that is not recorded in the Gospels, not recorded in the book of Acts. It's not recorded in any other book of the Bible. It's recorded only by Jude. Jude keeps surprising us, doesn't it? Jude has these quotations from people that are uh, true. Enoch, Michael, he has these quotations which are not found anywhere else but in his letter. Little mini dramas. The drama between Michael and Satan. The drama between Enoch and the angels and the great prophecy that Enoch makes recorded in this letter. And now we have the drama of the apostles talking about the last time. All right. Well, that's enough to whet your appetite. And so we'll take a break and you can satisfy your appetite. But before you get up, uh, a comment about our way forward. I said at the outset that we're nearly at the end of the letter of Jude, and that is correct. We will take up to verse 19 this evening, and then next week we will do verses 20 through 23. And that will leave the doxology, verses 24 to 25, for the third meeting of this month. And then we're going to take a week off as I gather myself for my next excursion into the Old Testament. And that will be the book of the prophet Zephaniah. So uh, we're going to spend the rest of this springtime in this Bible study uh, learning about Zephaniah. Uh, Probably a book that you've never really studied and probably a book you know very little about, except if you're a fan of classical music, you know about the D.A.C. Ray. And anyway, two more weeks on Jude and then a break. And then two weeks after that, we'll start on Zephaniah. The break will enable me to, you know, gather my final thoughts together about beginning Zephaniah and uh, setting the historical context for you for that prophet. And then we'll go with the, uh, the marvelous Hebrew text of that prophet's work. All right, stretch your legs and take a break and we'll come back and look a little more at verse 18. Returning to verse 18, there are some narrative echoes of this verse. Even our Lord's comments in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, also recorded in Mark 13. Let's go back then to Matthew 24 for a moment. Matthew 24, and would someone read verses 11 and 12 when you have it? Many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now there's an echo of what is going to happen in the last time, namely that false prophets are going to arise. But it's not exactly what Jude himself is referring to. Nonetheless, it carries the same general flavor. That's the reason I call it an echo. Now, glancing up to verse 5 of that same chapter, Matthew 24, 
Would someone read that? For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. So here are false Christs or false messiahs as well as false prophets. Uh, part of uh, Jesus' comments here in the in the uh, Olivet Discourse, which is referring to the end of the age or the last times. Now, perhaps the most interesting and complete comment uh, from the apostles comes from Paul's farewell address to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And I'd like to have someone read uh, all three verses of that, verses 29 to 31 of Acts 20. This may be uh, the kind of language that uh, Randy was remembering. Acts 20, verses 29 to 31. Anyone have it? I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. All right, now Paul's comments here reflect on what will be spoken in these last times, namely perverse things, to draw away the disciples, in other words, to make converts which will lead people out of the church. This is, in principle, the kind of thing that is being referred to in Jude verse 18, though not exactly the same language. Now, 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3 always also carry on that flavor of this language of deception and uh, uh, drawing away the believers uh, uh, after false messiahs and false Christs. Nonetheless, there is in all of that uh, New Testament material, and in fact in the whole New Testament, no exact quotation which you find in Jude 18. And I repeat myself, this is the only place in the Bible that we find it. So it's another instance of something divinely revealed, but recorded only by Jude. And the two others are also in his letter, verse 9, the comment of Michael to Satan, and verses 14 to 15, the prophecy of Enoch about the future coming of the Lord with the angels. Now, before we leave this 18th verse, there's one more thing to consider. These people had heard the apostles uh, say uh, what is recorded in verse 18. The apostles heard Christ say this. Is that possible? It is possible, though it's not recorded. It is, of course, possible that this is revealed directly to the apostles and did not come to them from Christ. But it is also possible, plausible, that Christ himself said it. It's not recorded by any of the writers of the Gospels, but Jude records it because the apostles passed it on. But there's one more possibility here. Is it because Jude heard his brother say it, and he knew that it had been passed on to the apostles by his brother Jesus, and that they had repeated what Jesus said, and so he preserves it here in his own epistle. 
These are possible scenarios for how we have this passage or this, uh, <clears throat> this statement appearing in Jude's letter. I can't solve uh, the uh, exact uh, process by which it appears. It comes by divine inspiration after all. But nonetheless, <clears throat> uh, there is obviously a story behind this quotation. And so we grapple with what that story may have been conceivably, possibly even that Jude had heard it from his brother, and that is part of the original story. Any questions or comments there? We want to focus now upon that phrase, last time. And I've written that out in Greek for you, not once again to uh, overwhelm you with uh, Greek words, but I transliterated the Greek so that you could see it in English characters instead of Greek characters. And we'll begin at the end with the last word there, chronu. Do you see any English word in that word chronu? No. no. To know? No. Chronology. Chronology, yes. And chronology refers to what, Randy? Time. To time. All right. So that's the word for time in Greek, chronu. Now, eschatu, what do you see there? Is anything there? Uh, did you see in eschatu? Eschatology or eschatological. Okay, and what does that word mean? And or last. Actually, it means last. Okay, so there you have the last time in Greek with an English transliteration. Now, we want to ask the question, is the last time Jude's time? What do you think? Is the last time Jude's time? Jerry, you're voting yes. Anyone saying no? Sounds like an amillennial problem. Now, we're not asking about millennialism. We're simply asking what the text says. Here you want, here you want to confuse the issue by bringing in millennial distinctions. Let's hold off on that for a minute. Is this Jude's time? Do we agree that this is Jude's time? No. He wouldn't be saying if it weren't, correct? Right. He records it because he's in the last time. So that the 2,000 year ago present time is the last time, which is Jude's time, correct? At least that's what the text seems to be saying. He's writing as if it is there in his own time. 2,000 years ago. Professor Sandler. I don't want to jump the gun on you, but you're going to tend to add more. But verse 19 seems to clinch that. These are the men. Divide you. Yes, that would, confirm, that would confirm what we're saying about the presence of the last time 2,000 years ago as he's writing. All right, now, what about our present time? 2014. Still the, last time. Still the last time. We've been in the last time for 2,000 years. All right now, how is that possible that we've been in the last time for 2,000 years? What is it that designates the last time? Robert? I say it would be the church age. The church age. Mm, okay. The coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ, which is the coming of what? Who is Jesus Christ? God. He is God. He is God the Son. So, the coming of God 
God incarnate, God the Son incarnate, is a sign of the last time. That has happened. Happened 2,000 years ago. So we've been in that era for 2,000 years. Anything else? Sign of the last time. Who is Jesus? Besides the Son of God. He is the eschaton. He is... The eschaton. Mm, I like that, but I, let's hold off on that for a moment. He is the what? Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The coming of the Christ is a sign of the last time. <clears throat> okay, so the fact that God himself has come in the flesh, the fact that we've had the advent of the Messiah, we just celebrated that a month ago, and... We have a human being who has passed through every aspect of the last time and completed it in human history. We have a human being who has passed through every aspect of the last time and completed it in human history. History. Now, what am I driving at? I'm driving at something that joins together history and event. History and person and event. I'm joining together history, person, and event in terms of a paradigm of completion in time and space. A son of Adam, yes, without sin, but a son of Adam goes through what every child of Adam is destined to experience since the fall of mankind and the entrance of sin into the world. What does he go through? What does he experience? This is what he experiences. He experiences death. He experiences burial in the ground. He experiences the resurrection of the body. He experiences being transposed into eternity. He experienced a judge. He experiences being adjudged fit either for eternal glorification or eternal damnation. In this particular case, case of Jesus of Nazareth, he is adjudged worthy of eternal glorification. Notice the paradigm. Death, burial, resurrection of the body, transposition to eternity, judgment, judgment unto glorification. The one who did this, namely Jesus of Nazareth, Finished and accomplished all of this, that is death, burial, resurrection of the body, transposition to eternity, adjudged for eternal glorification. Jesus of Nazareth finished it and accomplished all this in history 2,000 years ago. These things of the last time, these things of the eschatological time, these eschatological things of the eschatological time, death, burial, 
resurrection of the body, transposition to eternity, a judgment for uh, glorification. They have been accomplished and completed in time and space history in Christ the Messiah, the Son of God incarnate. It's not just that God the Son comes, wonderfully true as that is. It's not just that the Messiah comes, wonderfully true it is. It is what God the Son as the Messiah experiences as a human in history. Because he must fill up all of history, all of human history. He must complete it in his own human history. And when he does, when he finishes it, when he fills it up, when he completes it, when he experiences all of it, the last time has arrived. These last things of the last times have been completed and accomplished once and for all for the sons and daughters of Adam who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are united to him, their history conjoined with his history. Your history, you who believe in Christ, joined with his history. In Christ, that is, for those in Christ Jesus The last time with its death, burial, resurrection of the body, rapture into eternity, judgment and glorification has already been completed. He's completed it for you. History is fulfilled for you in what he did. There is no time left except the consummation. That's all that's left, the bringing down of the curtain on all of human history. Because Jesus has already gone through everything else. There is no uncertainty then about the future for those who are in Christ. There's no uncertainty about your future death because you died when he died. There is no future uncertainty about your burial in the ground because you were buried in the ground when he was buried there. There's no future uncertainty about the resurrection of your body because your body was raised up even as his was raised up. There's no future uncertainty about your transposition to eternity and to heaven because he has seated you in the heavenly places already in Christ Jesus. There's no uncertainty about whether you will be adjudged for glorification You stand in fear of damnation. Is Jesus in fear of damnation? If you are in Christ Jesus, are you in fear of damnation? Of course not. The last time has been completed for you. In him. It's in him. Not in you. Not in you in and of yourself. It's in you in him. Your focus is on him, not yourself. When will the modern church realize it's not about me? It's not about promoting us. It's not about our program. It's not about my ministry. It's about Christ. That's all it's about. That's the only story you've got. Because his is the eternal story. 
And your story goes on only in his eternal story. You are nothing without him. You are everything in him. But it is he who is everything for you. Christ must have the preeminence or you insult him. You demean him. You make him less than his glorious, magnificent, redeeming person. But this assurance is yours. The last time has come to you because he's gone through it for you. It's finished. It's accomplished. It is past for him. And though it be future for you in one sense, it is still past to you because it's been completed on your behalf. Fear not. Little children, walk in the light of the age to come where Jesus walks now. All right, so this phrase, last time, is not referring to some future thousand-year period of glory. It's not referring to some golden age coming back to this earth. That's not what it's referring to. The Bible does not use this phrase that way. You just went through an explanation of yourself in which you saw that Jude is talking about his own time. He's talking about the present time of 2,000 years ago. He's talking about your time. 2,000 years later, the epistle to the Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken through his son. We've been in the last days since the writer of Hebrews wrote those words. Because, even for the writer of Hebrews, as for Jude, the writer of this epistle, the last time is what Jesus has lastly accomplished. The end of his life is the end of of death, burial, resurrection of the body, judgment, transposition to eternity, and glorification. That should cheer your hearts. That should cause you to fall down on your knees and say, thank you, Jesus, a thousand times over. That should focus your life upon something other than your navel. That is a wonderful gift. Treasure it, even as you treasure him. Any questions or comments? All right, now there's another indication of the last time. What else signals the fact that the last time is upon us? Verse 18. These mockers have come. 2,000 years ago, they were abroad in this community. The fact that mockers have come is an indication that we're in the last time. Scoffers, those who mock the word of God, scoff at his Christ, mock the words of his apostles, rail at those who embrace them. You say you don't understand why people make fun of Christianity? You don't understand why the mainstream media ridicules it? You don't understand it? Well, you shouldn't be surprised. We've been in the last time for 2,000 years. They're just joining the crowd of mockers and scoffers. 
Pray for their repentance. Pray for their eyes to be opened. Pray that they might be enlightened and transformed. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God and to insult his son publicly. Fearful thing. But there's nothing new here. Jude dealt with it. Jude lived in a pagan community. He lived in a pagan world. He lived in a world which despised Christianity. Despised it to the point of crucifying it, executing it, making martyrs of its proponents, driving it underground in places. Christianity was not well liked in the first century. It was regarded as vain, fanatical superstition. And beyond that, it was regarded as a threat to the state. And you know what rulers do when they think they're threatened. They persecute. So, this language is the language of the uh, culture in which he lived. The shocking thing here is that these mockers have come into the church. Yes, these insulters of Christ, God and his word, these scoffers have come into the church. We live with that in the 21st century. We live with those in the church who scoff at the word of God. They mock the words of the scripture. They regard them as contextualized and they must be enlightened and moved into our modern, more progressive culture. We too have intruders who want to devise, divide rather, scoff and mark and mock the word of God. Jude says Beware. Jude says, mark them out. Jude says, be alert. And in verse 19, he describes them in terms of his favorite literary and rhetorical device. He describes them in triads. The three-peat. The triplicate. They cause divisions. They are schismatics. Now, he doesn't use the Greek word schismatic here, but the word means the same thing. They are worldly minded and they are devoid of the spirit. Now, the worldly minded word is sukikoi in the Greek. It's the antithesis of pneumatikoi. Pneumatikoi means filled with the spirit. You will find this distinction in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 to 15. I'm not going to ask you to look it up, but I want you to make a note of it. Paul distinguishes between the sukikoi man, the natural man, and the pneumatikoi man, the spiritual man. That is the background to Jews' vocabulary here. The natural man is a man who has a natural mind, natural reason. Natural lifestyle, 
The spiritual man has a spiritual mind, spiritual reason, and a spiritual lifestyle. How are these dividers, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit individuals, how are they dividing up the Christian community to which Jude writes? They are worldly people. They are earthly-minded. They are natural men. Notice the antithesis. They are not otherworldly, that is, they are not heavenly-minded, and they are not spiritual in their lifestyle. He is characterizing then these intruders, the these whom he is describing, and he makes one final comment, they are devoid of the spirit. They are devoid of the spirit. They have not the spirit. What does that mean? It means they are not Christians. They are not Christians. You cannot have Christ saved by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the presence of Christ and His Father in the world now. Without the Spirit, you have neither the Father nor the Son. With the Spirit, you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who indwells you richly. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit because the Spirit transforms your heart to love Jesus is Lord. Now we're not talking about pretense here. We're not talking about mouthing formulas. We're not talking about pretending faux Christianity. We're talking about the real McCoy. We're talking about the genuine article. We're talking about sincere love of God the Father, God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. Having the Spirit is having Christ and God. To be devoid of the Spirit, to have not the Spirit is to have not life. It is to have death. It is to have no redemption. It is to be under condemnation even now. This is a fearful state, a state to be fled from at all costs. Paul himself urges the Thessalonians to flee the wrath to come. So to all, who do not know Christ, we encourage them to flee to the Lord Jesus that they may not experience what it means to have not the Spirit of Christ, have not the Father, have not the kingdom of heaven, have not the glory of the throne of the city of God, and to have in its place the horror and the terror of an eternity of hellfire and destruction. Characterization which Jude uses in conclusion with respect to these intruders is devastating. 
he has already outlined their sexual immorality. He has already talked about the fact that they love to experience power or tyranny over others. Verse 12, they care only for themselves. He has described their lust for money. That is, that they have intruded into this community in order to gain economic well, uh, uh, status, economic comfort. And they play personality games in verse 16 by flattering others for the sake of gaining advantage over them. These expressions of the characterization of those who are devoid of the spirit have not the spirit. These expressions which characterize them are expressions which characterize people who are set and stuck on themselves. They are the most important person in any crowd. They are the most important person in any family. They are the most important person in any arena. It is all about them. They cannot see themselves in any other role than using others for their own advantage. They will manipulate and maneuver in order to dominate or in order to gain leverage. This is not the characterization of the Lord Jesus. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give himself away, not to dominate. He came to die so that you might die to yourself. This is the gospel that Jude holds up with the mirror of those who are the very contradiction of it. You shall know them by their fruits. Pray God that in this year of our Lord, 2014, the church is not troubled by more and more interlopers who bear the visions and the mirror reflection of the interlopers in the epistle of Jude. Pray God that it be not so in 2014. Any questions or comments that you have? Next week, verses 20 through 23. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is an embarrassment of riches for us. Yes, it is easy for us to think about the negatives, but the wealth of the grace and love of Christ overwhelms us. We savor the riches of his affection, your affection, for sinners such as we are. And we pour contempt on all of our pride and self-centeredness, realizing, O Lord, that that pride is a god and idol of our own soul. May it be crucified, put to death, even as Christ himself put our sin to death, 
May we die to ourselves as we find ourselves dying unto sin in him. And may we live raised up to righteousness of life as he was raised up and justified as a righteous redeemer. We thank you for the accomplishment of the events of the last time in our precious Savior. Encourage us then that in his death we have gone to death. And in his resurrection from the dead, we have come alive from the dead. And in his ascension into glory, we have been raised up with him to be seated beside him in heavenly places. And with his glorification is the sure assurance of our participation in glory, even now and forevermore. Lift up our hearts, Lord. Encourage our lives. Refresh our witness and our testimony and bless your church. Wherever she in this wide world loves the Lord Jesus in sincerity, bless her, preserve her, prosper her testimony, save the lives of her witnesses, we pray, keep them in your hand. And if they must suffer for righteousness sake, O Lord, Magnify their testimony to the unbelieving world that sinners may be ashamed and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in these last days. Go with us now. We ask you to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.